How do you feel about anonymous accounts? I mean, I think there's been some good arguments about why certain groups might want anonymous accounts that are societally legitimate. I think it's great because they're a little bit more authentic to who the people are. Being anonymous online is what gets us into a ton of problems. The ease at which people can anonymize themselves on social media, I think, has larger resonance to more serious issues. There are a few people that appear to be artists creating things. They just don't like photos of themselves. That I'm totally fine with. Well, and I think it's like a failure of identity. And so the anonymous account becomes like this escape valve. And it allows people to behave poorly. It's harmful for people to be able to just say whatever they want and slander or harass without accountability. Hello, and welcome to Why'd You Push That Button, a show where Caitlin Tiffany Hello. and Ashley Carmen, that's me, examine all the choices technology forces us to make. Today's episode is all about anonymous accounts. Yes, we love anonymous accounts here. Yeah. So to be specific about the kind of anonymous accounts we're discussing, this isn't like whistleblower accounts <laughs> or like super generic troll accounts mm. or like those weird bots that just tweet every link with like a hashtag MAGA oh, or like no. have like a Pepe the Frog. We're avoiding all the no. not fun <laughs> anonymous accounts, basically. Yes. And we're also not talking about Finstas because we have already talked about Finstas. Yeah, you'll find that episode. <laughs> we're talking about anonymous accounts that are true labors of love, parody, art, criticism, performance, Etc. Wow. Highbrow. Creative anonymity. These are accounts that are designed to accrue followers, but for whatever reason, are not designed to accumulate attention directed at the person Whoa. behind them. So I think like the prime example of the kind of thing we're talking about is Drill. Who's Drill? You know who Drill is. Drill is like a parody account on Twitter who's kind of like the omniscient like id of the internet. For the last 10 years, was totally anonymous until recently, is still, like, very reticent about talking to any press. But there was recently, like, one reporter who argued that Drill, very credibly, like, very straight-faced argued that Drill should win the Nobel Prize for Literature because of his tweets, you know, making fun of, like, internet tropes and bad, like, brand humor. (laughs) It's like a really famous tweet that's, like, live free or die. KFC. (laughs) Or like the most famous one is probably the one you've seen where it's like somebody writing out a budget and it's like $3,600 on candles. Oh, yeah. Someone who's good at the economy, please help me budget this. My family is dying. I have seen that tweet. Yeah. So Drill has 1.3 million followers. Damn. Drill is known. Damn. Drill is loved. Yet Drill does not want to be personally known or personally loved. He wants to be a mystery. Like everyone knows him as Drill. Yes. And that's that. And his face doesn't matter. It's not part of the brand. Right. And yes, as such, he did not respond to our emails. But we did find a lot of other exciting anonymous accounts to talk to. Oh, I'm really excited. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, to bring it back to me, a person who loves attention, (laughs) I'm extremely interested in this episode because as someone who's currently struggling through this idea of like, I am a brand, ugh. I want to know how the anonymous people do it and why they do it and what they get out of it. Yeah. I think, like, most of my favorite internet stuff is anonymous. And for whatever reason, I mean, I'm probably, like, extrapolating. I don't, like, know this for a fact. But I always kind of assume that people who, like, who choose to be anonymous are making this kind of, like, moral refusal to participate in, like, personal branding or in, like, influencer culture. Like, Mm -hmm. Drill, for example, whom I love, or any anonymous 
Twitter parody account, really. Mm -hmm. They're just like, life online is super dumb. It's only going to get dumber. Somebody (laughs) needs to make fun of it. It doesn't especially matter who. I'm going to take up the torch. I'm (laughs) I'm going to, like, plow through the dark night of content. And I don't need to thank you for it. And personally, I think that's beautiful. I love these people. Like, (laughs) I'm fully here on all of them. Okay, great. So in today's show, we have a bunch of stories. We have a teen who wanted to anonymously critique the streetwear brand Supreme. We have a woman who wanted to anonymously put her face in bread on Instagram every day. And we have a fashion industry insider who wanted to anonymously pivot to feminism. Oh, I wish you could be not anonymous and talk about feminism. (laughs) But that's okay. Anyway, it's beautiful. And of course, then we have to cover the dark side of things. So we're going to be talking to a reporter who was the subject of an anonymous parody account, which not only didn't he not love, but found to be way over the line and totally offensive. And then we're going to talk to an expert who's a media researcher and specialist in online work. So out of the gate, because we need and crave the teen perspective. We spoke to the operator of at Supreme Copies, an Instagram account that explains all the pop culture and design references in Supreme clothes. I'm like 20 and I live in Portland. And yeah, I'd like to still like not say my name if that's cool. Okay, so he was recently a teen. I started the account when I was like 17. And it was just, like, a way to, like, educate, I guess, and, like, archive all the stuff that was, like, being found online at the time, you know? Just kind of put it in a medium that was pretty easy for everyone. Like, it translated pretty well, and it kind of just snowballed from there. We started talking about anonymity and why he doesn't put his name on the account. It turns out he just doesn't think it would be cool to take credit for his work. Like, it doesn't really matter if I say my name or not. I don't know. I didn't want to make it seem like I was doing it for attention for myself. Plus, he didn't want to get yelled at by people who really like Supreme. I think people just got mad because they misinterpret the page and they think that I'm, like, coming after Supreme, and it's really not like that. Like, every clothing brand does what they do. Like, I wouldn't say my age at first because I knew, like, old heads would get, like, upset that I was, like, a young kid trying to, like, talk about streetwear knowledge and shit. So this doesn't exactly mean that he didn't use the account for personal gain. As a member of Gen Z, he's aware that would be ridiculous. I'd be dumb to not use my platform that I'm, like, lucky enough to be given and the connections I've been able to make. But, like... You know, I'm not like a super weirdo. Like if I like I've met people that I've interacted with on the page before, I'm not going to stay anonymous in real life. It's more of just in general, like for interviews and things like that. Like I tend to stay anonymous. But like, you know, if I meet people in real life, like and I obviously put the book and stuff on my resume and things like that. Basically, he says he's misunderstood. He loves Supreme. He will talk about Supreme at any time with anyone. But to direct any attention at his physical person would be tacky, particularly because he does not want the employees of Supreme to personally hate him. Like I said, I think if you interpret it right, you know that I'm not attacking. It's all with admiration. I'm not doing it like from an attacking standpoint. For someone who wants to be anonymous, he really cares about how people perceive him. I know. But like, don't we all? I'm not hating. I'm just pointing it out. (laughs) So yeah, not wanting to seem like you want attention is a pretty good reason to be anonymous, but another good reason is to celebrate a secret lifelong tick online 
without having to answer too many questions about it in your real life. Oh my gosh. This is big for me and Caitlin. The very first thing Ashley and I ever did together was a really dumb blog post about this Instagram account in 2015. Yep. I still remember that day of us sitting on the orange couch. Opposite ends of the couch, not talking, Mm -hmm. very embarrassed to be forced to write together because we didn't know each other at all. And I also had just come from a trade pub and didn't know what blogging was. (laughs) All right. So to get back to the show, (laughs) we spoke to Breadface, a woman who simply loves smushing her face onto different types of bread. Wonder Bread slices, like the whole thing is really nice. Those roll cakes, what are they called? The Swiss rolls. That was like the one that started it all. Any sort of spongy cakes. Oh, but then croissants are nice too. She's always wanted to put her face in bread. She can't resist it. (laughs) But her friends thought it was weird and made fun of her when she talked about it. Anytime my friends kind of caught me or anytime I told them about this urge, they always laughed. So I was like, okay, that's always a good reaction. And it was 2015 and I was like, this is the internet, whatever. I'm just going to throw it online and maybe it'll just like make someone's day better if they're having a shitty day. The bread count is at 179 and I have 195k followers. So almost 200,000 people love Breadface, but they don't actually know who Breadface is. I'm down to tell people those details, but I think I'm always careful about never showing my entire face at once. And I don't think I have a super recognizable face, to be honest. And I think nowadays it would be very ballsy for somebody to go up to an Asian girl and be like, hey, are you Breadface? In case they're wrong. Part of the reason she stays anonymous is to separate her art from the ever-looming threat of commerce. No, it's not my job. I don't do that for money. I tried to kind of go after that Instagram girl lifestyle, but I I fucking hated it. I try to protect it as much as I can because it really feels like a joyful thing. And I think the quickest way to ruin that is always to attach money to it or make it your bread and butter. And then a lot of people assume breadface is a sex thing, so it's good to have a little bit of distance from that. I feel like I get a lot of people with interesting kinks. It's this person that always, he or she or whoever, is always like describing these elaborate scenes. They're like, what if there was a tiny city on this potato chip? Would you eat it? And all they want me to say is yes. And that's it. Whoever this is just like looks at the comment and they're like, oh my god. She doesn't really mind, though. She's glad the breadface character encourages people to express themselves so long as they're cool about it. I welcome all that stuff. I think it makes life interesting. I mean, we all have, like, weird kinks that we don't understand, and we just have to be very responsible about, you know, what kind of things we dive into. That's the biggest reason that breadface is anonymous. The character is more useful to others, she thinks, if it stays a mystery. It honestly never occurred to me that it should be public. And I also think that it's more fun for everyone if I remain a mystery. I think people like imagining that there's this random office lady that just has this thing that she does at night. Breadface says the best thing about her anonymous account is that it's helped her stay committed to art. And she's made some money, like $20,000 worth, in random gifts from strangers. Our guess was way off. Yeah, I was like, she's going to say $200. And then she's like, $20,000. And I was like, what? (laughs) But she can ax this account at any time with no consequences. The best thing about this account is it sadly validated how I felt about myself creatively, which is 
unfortunate because it had to be tied to like numbers and, you know, followers. But yeah, I've been getting more opportunities to do stuff out of the internet and video work. I think it's just always important to have a creative outlet no matter what that isn't tied to money or work. So I'll always do something, but I don't get bothered or I don't have to do annoying things. I don't have to do anything for money. I can just do whatever I want all the time. Plus, she gets free bread. Yeah, it's uh, it's about the bread. It's about the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> so as much as I love the idea that one might be anonymous simply to avoid seeming like a tryhard, <laughs> but then still use their Instagram following on their resume. Important. I think Breadface gets at what's like most interesting to me about an Instagram account because it it lets you really invest a lot of time and energy and creativity in something without saying to other people like please, hey, like tie this to my face, ask me about it all the time, Mm -hmm. expect me to monetize it and whatever else. It's truly just putting the focus on the art itself. Yeah. She's not the focus. Right. The bread is the focus. It's all about the bread. It's about the bread. All right. So refusing to be a brand, this is one big reason to be anonymous. Mm -hmm. Another reason, which I think should be obvious, is that the internet is a cesspool and there are plenty of people who are anonymous simply to protect themselves from like the hideousness <laughs> of the general online experience. So next up, we're going to hear from Ambivalently Yours. She runs an anonymous Instagram account, mostly illustrations of conversations that she has with her followers about feelings and feminism and whatever else comes up when you're chatting with strangers online. Ambivalently Yours is sort of my braver alter ego, I guess. And my work is mainly drawing based, although I do some animations too, and there's always text included. And everything has a little bit of like a feminist angle, but my focus is really on talking about emotions, um, more specifically like mixed feelings, the things that make us ambivalent. So this started as an anonymous Tumblr account back when Ambivalently Yours was working full-time in fashion. In 2011, 2012, like feminism wasn't as like trendy as it is now. And I wanted to make art and share it online, but I was still employed in the fashion industry. So I was feeling a little nervous about, you know, making work that would inherently be critical of the industry that allowed me to pay my bills and pay for school. In a lot of ways, Tumblr was like the perfect place to do art anonymously. There was a lot of like kind of anonymous art accounts because people could also ask questions anonymously. So I was like putting art out there from my alter ego and people started writing to me, sending me really personal messages and questions just anonymously. And I decided to just start answering these messages with drawings. She says that being anonymous was partly self-protection and partly a way to help other people be more open. It allows me to really separate like my personal life from my art because my art is like very personal but I allow myself like a little degree of separation so that I'm not making myself too vulnerable online because the online world is like such a volatile place especially for people that aren't cis white men so it became this really interesting sort of anonymous but really personal and emotional interaction and sort of collaboration that I was having with people online. And that's really like where my work sort of grew and became what it is today. As the account got more and more popular, she had to make increasingly difficult decisions about when to protect her anonymity and how. My work has expanded and now I do sort of 
in-person, like real life markets and uh, workshops sometimes. And I've made the conscious decision like not to show up at these things like wearing a mask because I feel like whereas say on Tumblr or online, the anonymity allows me to like open up with people more. I feel like in real life, it would have the opposite effect. So for example, she has to put her real name on contracts when she does the commissioned work. She has to have her real name on business paperwork and bank account. Some people don't necessarily keep her secret as well as others or even understand why this would be important to her. I was interviewed by a local news station a few years ago and they wanted to do like a little video profile on me and I agreed on the condition that they never showed my face. And they agreed and their videographer came in and only filmed me from behind. And and then when they aired the little segment, they added my name without telling me. And then when I asked uh, the woman who had interviewed me, who was like, you know, my producer vetoed your anonymous idea as though it was just like some fun thing I was doing and they decided to just veto it without telling me. So that was super infantilizing and infuriating. Um, My only saving grace is that they actually managed to get my last name wrong. (laughs) Even so, she really stands by it as crucial. I think that it can be a good thing just to put a limit between like your personal life and your professional life. And I think because of the internet, we're like so used to like knowing everything we need to know. You can Google someone and know all the details. And I think that that can make you really vulnerable as an artist to feel like your whole life is out there. And sometimes there's value in letting the art be one thing and your personal life be another thing. And I think most people in their jobs can have that separation. She also says that being anonymous protects her from an unfriendly internet and protects her from turning into a jerk. Well, I think it really forces me to like keep my ego in check because when I meet new people, I'm not going to be like, oh, hey, do you know my Instagram account? I have a lot of followers. It's important to kind of keep your ego in check and to try to not place too much value on that whole internet fame because it's so fickle and it's so like it can go away at any time. And I'm trying to be very cautious about it. That's the beauty of the internet is that like everything you build could come crumbling down any second. The instability of platforms has really turned into like a theme this season. Yeah, I'm I'm liking this theme. (laughs) Okay, so those are all of our heartwarming stories for this episode. And when we come back, we're going to take a detour into the darker side of anonymous accounts. Oh, yes. All right, so we are back, and now we're going to hear from someone who had a very negative experience with anonymous accounts, the podcast industry beat reporter and someone I very much respect, Nick Kwa. My name is Nick Kwa. I write the HodPod newsletter. It's a trade newsletter about the podcast industry. And because I write a niche industry newsletter for a very small community, which is the say the podcast community, I know a lot of people in this in this sort of space. A lot of people know me. I have a lot of direct relationships with people across podcasting. And we all kind of are in a bucket together where we think about and worry about the same things and we have gossip about each other. And that's kind of how that kind of dynamic works a lot of times. Earlier this year, someone decided to start a Twitter account that was a parody of not a brand, not a politician, not even a minor celebrity, but of Nikwa. I believe I was in South by Southwest in Austin when I started getting a couple of emails and just like text messages, people going like, hey, there's this like Twitter account that has your name on it. And I think they're trying to, it's trying to be like a sort of parody-ish account. 
The Twitter account itself is really odd. It's pretty random. It's very much insider podcast talk. There's pictures of CEOs, people you definitely would not recognize unless you specifically follow the podcast industry. It's not dedicated to making fun of Nick, but Nick is a through line on the Twitter feed and also part of the tweets. There's a quality in the tweets that felt overly toxic a little bit, slightly unhinged. It was definitely a very male kind of voice. And it was definitely a person, an individual who sort of felt really complicated to negative feelings about sort of money going to the spaces. There was a lot of making fun of people who became rich and famous through this system. But it was very much in the spirit of like, I'm a person who's reporting on this thing. This thing's absurd. Kind of like Onion-ish, but a lot less funny. It felt like this person's a little bit like off. His first instinct was basically to try to forget about it. But that's kind of hard. My principle on these things is to block and ignore. And so I blocked the account. But of course, it didn't quite stop me from like occasionally Googling it through an incognito browser just to make sure that this person didn't say anything particularly incendiary. Then other people started getting interested in the account and wanted to figure out who it was and what their beef was with Nick. The podcast team at Vox Media was even into it too. Some people have started making a, you know, kind of playing a parlor game of like guessing who this person is. Things started getting complicated when I began to hear that there were a couple people who will go unnamed at an unnamed podcast company that's quite moneyed, thinking that the account was run by a person who used to work for that company. Nobody took official action on it, but it was like a really complicated situation because there were some ill feelings between those two parties, is my understanding. Uh, so that was the first time that I kind of felt like a little bit uneasy about the situation because not anything directly on the part of the, of the parody itself, but that this was digging stuff up or this was sort of, you know, kind of riling up emotional pockets that were already pretty toxic in this community to, to begin with. Eventually, though, it went way too far. This person wasn't just parroting Nick, but also reaching out to his contacts and people in the industry more directly, which definitely crossed the line. Whoever this person was had started texting people using a Google Voice account, so it's anonymized, and trying to get phone numbers of other people in in the industry, and had at various times sent kind of creepy-ish text messages. As annoyed as Nick was about the whole situation, and as personal as it really felt to him, he recognized that it was in some ways just a reality of Twitter as a platform. You go on Twitter, you kind of should know what you're getting yourself into. Somebody going to into your text inbox and being a part of your daily life, like it's one of a thousand things that could sort of affect you in a day. And it's one of those things that will just sort of burrow it, bur its way into your head. And it bothered one such recipient so much that she reached out to me and was like, hey, this is happening. I gotta be honest, like, it kind of bums me, it creeps me out. For me, that was just a line. So he took to Twitter to express that. I put out a Twitter thread sort of basically spelling out that I'm aware of this, that I'm not happy about. And like, it just kind of bums me out. But also, more importantly, the, the text thing happened and that like that crosses the line and that whoever is doing this should just stop it. For now, it seems like that was enough to get the troll to back off. And Nick is a little worried that this is temporary. My understanding is that this person has like essentially issued like a really weird apology and then scrubbed that person's Twitter account, the parody Twitter account in general. So right now it feels like things are more or less settled. But... You are never really left with a feeling that, like, there's somebody in this community 
that did this that not only interpreted this to be a funny thing to do, but is a person who felt slightly volatile to begin with. And that kind of creeps me out because there's something about the nature of the tweets that this person was putting out that like suggested that this person either has met me before and, and is definitely working in the industry. And so that that is like very unsettling. But Nick says it hasn't affected him too badly, mostly because he's already spent enough time online to know that this kind of harassment is, unfortunately, par for the course. I mean, I'm perfectly fine. Well, I'm like bummed out like anybody else that I'd be parodied in general because I generally mean well and I generally try to be as helpful a human being as possible. But, you know, you can't really stop what happens on the internet. Like people are going to sort of make fun of you. They'll make fun of you. I also want to sort of say like, I'm sure there are worse versions of this happening to people with much less power than me. Like women, uh, people of color, people who do not have like a platform than I do. I'm sure like this kind of abuse or variance of this abuse is, is more significant. He still believes in the beauty of anonymous accounts just like not anonymous mean people. There are tons of anonymous accounts that I follow that I feel very warmly about because they build a track record of being trustworthy or being like people of just generally well-meaning and intent and able to do so and able to like generate a genuine positivity and a genuine sort of real contribution to to your experience of Twitter or, or to Facebook or the world or whatever. The thing that kind of, just kind of reminds me is like there's always the possibility of another one of these things sort of hiding it around the corner. And that is the by design Right. Like that is sort of what this platform was built for. And so it comes down to the question of like, why am I here for it? Like, what is what is the point of being on this platform? What's the point of being on the Internet in this way? Um, And it definitely sort of makes me think a lot about that, I think. I really like this story. I like that Nick like came out on the other side of a horrible and emotional nightmare and was not jaded. Yeah, Nick is so graceful. I just think he handled this situation so well and he didn't let it get him down and he has full understanding of what happened. Yeah. All right, our last stop, obviously. The last stop. Is college. College. (laughs) The academic take. So we have a lot of interesting anecdotes to go off of, which provided us with a lot of insight. But I think it's time we get the zoomed out take from someone who's seen a lot more of the anonymous internet than we have and can also situate this in a broader context, maybe outside of the internet. So we spoke to media researcher Brooke Aaron Duffy. My name is Brooke Aaron Duffy, and I am an assistant professor in the Department of Communication at Cornell University. And I study the intersection of gender, creative work, and social media. She is basically constantly studying people's motivations for doing various things online. Sounds like she should have a podcast named Why'd You Push That Button? (laughs) But especially things that pertain to self-presentation and commodifying yourself and putting yourself up for evaluation in front of the entire world. We asked her why, more broadly, anonymous accounts are something people would want. One of the reasons that has come up a lot in my research is the various forms of vulnerability that being out there entails, especially for women and other marginalized populations. And so I've talked to a lot of women who talk about the hate they face, um, the harassment they experience, the misogyny that they confront in Instagram. How do you reconcile this ideal of being in the public eye and generating an income and attention on social media with the realities of this space where people are confronting all of the negatives that are endemic to social media life? And so this helps provide a backdrop why people are increasingly turning 
returning to these accounts in ways that still seek to garner attention, but at the same time are not tied to their off-screen persona. We told her about Supreme Copies and how loath he was to be perceived as somebody who wanted attention. And then we asked if there is some kind of backlash against the personal brand. You know, over the last 20 years, but really over the last few years with the rise of social media, everyone is encouraged to create and cultivate a personal brand. You know, it's almost become a point of mockery or critique the fact that everyone is engaging in personal branding and everyone wants to become an influencer. And so there's backlash, there's criticism, there's ridicule. And so how do you deal with this negativity and and hate and harassment at the same time that you're encouraged to develop and cultivate and curate this personal brand? And so one of the ways is to build an audience and engage in these branding practices, but removing any traces that are tied to one's offline self, whether it is photos or it is textual reference to where they live. I see these all as, as forms of protection. As we know, anonymity is a double-edged sword. She also explained why Nick Qua's troll felt so emboldened to make fun of him. Anonymity has traditionally been linked to the sort of online disobition effect where we feel that we're not going to experience the consequences if we are concealed behind the screen. And so this, like anything else, can have positive or negative implications. And one of the negative implications is that by hiding behind a screen, people say the sorts of things they would not say in an offline context. And so this explains everything from hate blogs to cyberbullying to the circulation of so-called snark. It is honestly uncanny how close her research hues to the reasons that people actually gave us. She also brought up the reasons ambivalently yours and breadface cited. In some cases, people want to protect themselves from employers finding out that they are pursuing another form of work. In some cases, they don't want their family or friends or existing social network to know that they have this other online persona. And in other cases, they are just trying to sort of sift apart or they're trying to disconnect their offline selves from their online selves. I think the other element of it is among the many changes of work in the social media era is this erosion of boundaries between our personal lives in our professional lives. And to be a content creator, to be an influencer, assumes that the personal and professional are kind of hitched together. She brought up the horrors of growing up during a time when everything we do is available online for immediate review by everyone we know. This, to me, is a reaction against the imagined surveillance of social media and saying, here's a way for me to keep my personal life personal, while still ensuring that I can garner the various kinds of success that have come from amassing a following in the social media age. And one of the places I've seen this in my research is in the creation of secondary or even, you know, creating three accounts. And last year I did research with a collaborator, Olive Chan, where we were looking at the rise of Finstas, these fake Instagram accounts. You know, there's a lot of concern that Finstas or fake Instagram accounts are enabling cyberbullying and harassment and sort of this moral panic about what does it mean when young people have two or three accounts. 
And I see it as something very different. I see this as a way for young people to protect themselves against imagined surveillance. This fear that everything you do online will will follow you and perhaps haunt you for the rest of your life. Basically, she says that anonymity has been a safety measure for groups who are less welcome in public for as long as there has been a public. So it's not really unique to social media. The boundary between public and private spaces has long been fraught, especially for women in other marginalized communities. And with the rise of digital media, there's there's this assumption that everyone should put themselves out there. Everyone should try to garner an audience. Everyone should seek various kinds of attention. But what this narrative fails to accept are the realities of visibility, namely that putting yourself out there opens yourself up to public commentary in much the same ways that it has long done. And this is especially problematic for vulnerable populations, including women and people of color and other marginalized groups, who by putting themselves out there are opening themselves up to a lot of criticism in a very public way. And so, you know, when when we think about this ideal of being in the public and garnering attention and growing an audience. This assumes that the experience is the same for everyone, but the reality is that it's not. Women experience this command to be visible in very different ways. I mean, this makes a lot of sense. I wish I could be anonymous online because I just feel like as a woman, putting yourself out there isn't just about like, yeah, my face is there, but it's like it's your body, it's it's you and we're constantly having to protect ourselves and like it makes a lot of sense especially like for bread face where it can be perceived as a sexual situation mm-hmm. and I would imagine that could be really scary if she was fully out there as herself yeah I realized like when we were talking about that that like, my twitter avatar has been for a very long time like a picture of Reese Witherspoon and Jake Gyllenhaal which is you know supposed to be like funny and irreverent but I also have thought like many times about changing it to a picture of my face and like eh, I don't know I'd rather let my professional persona like not really have anything to do with my face I just yeah. want it want to be about the work I know I mean that's <laughs> great for you I say as like we get done with our photo shoot for this podcast but <laughs> someone recognized you out and about no we're not probably that story. I mean I'm just saying like you're not anonymous <laughs> no I know I know well still I think like this episode Like, we went into it being like, why would you want to be anonymous? And then we heard so many reasons that I feel like by, like, at this point. (laughs) It's true. The question is more like, why wouldn't you want to be anonymous? It's 100% true. That's exactly how I feel about it, too. I think, like, in particular, Ambivalently Yours and Breadface, they both started on Tumblr, Mm -hmm. they were telling us. And they were saying it was really nice to be on a platform where anonymous interactions are the default. I don't know. I feel like it can be really hard to remember the extent to which Facebook and Instagram and their general dominance has like steered us into this default of like everything is public. Everything is for a tangible purpose and for likes and follows. I don't know. As I think I have argued to you many times, my ideal internet would be just Tumblr and Gmail. End of list. And iMessage. No, I hate texting. But it's encrypted. So sure. Fine. (laughs) No, yeah, that's a really good point. Like, that's exactly how I feel by the end of this is, like, I want an anonymous account. But with the caveat that, like, anonymity can be bad in certain circumstances, like Nick Qua's situation where it was used for hurtful reasons, trolls who are really mean online. But ultimately, like, 
if you do something on the internet that's like actually illegal or you like threaten someone with death or something, okay. like you're not actually anonymous. You have an IP address. The cops can find you. So oh, like yeah. yeah. So like anonymity is kind of a farce online. But I would love to have an anonymous account. But we talked so much about your brand that you're building. Follow me on Instagram. <laughs> the funky phone cases. The acrylics. It's a great brand. It's a brand, nonetheless. The glasses. All right. Well, I feel great about Tariff this. Tariff enthusiast. All right. She's still going. <laughs> we feel great about this episode. I'm inspired. I love everyone who is on this episode. Amazing work. All right. So that's it for this episode. We're wrapping up. We're out of here. We want to thank our producers, Andrew Marino and Zach Mack. We also want to thank Gautam Shrikashen, who did the mixing and scoring. And as always, if you have thoughts or episode ideas or whatever else, you can email us at button at theverge.com. You can also find Caitlin on Twitter, not anonymously, at K-A-I-T underscore Tiffany. You can find me on Twitter at Ashley R. Carmen. And that's it for us. We will be back with another episode very soon. See you later. Bye. Bye.